All right. What's up, everybody? We're doing an author interview today with the attorney for John Wayne Gacy, specifically his attorney to try to get him off of death row. Interesting. He had other attorneys working on his case. He had quite a bit of attorneys. If you guys remember, he is or was a business, a, a man of business. It's time for our surprise, ah. which is for Heidi since she's here today. Hey, Heidi. <laughs> Surprise shots, surprise shots. We don't know what they are because they're a surprise. You guys are not being creative lately. Nicole said we had to get rid of bottles. Oh, smells terrible. So let's see. I'm trying to think. When did we when did we cover Gacy? Like two episode or three number? years ago. I don't know what episode number. Buck maybe it was four years ago. I don't know. We've been doing this for so long. Like maybe it was more than greater than 50, but less than 200, maybe. Yeah, that's a good range. 150 what episodes. What episode is this even? Is he even going to tell us when we hit 500? Are you fucking kidding me? We already hit 500. We're like at five. This is like 510. What are you talking about? There you go. See, he Wait. didn't tell us. We hit 500. We didn't do anything special. We hit 500. This is like episode 510. Well. Do you even listen to this podcast? I mean. This is episode 507. Okay. Well, uh, shoot. It's awkward. Oh, it's Heidi's birthday tomorrow, too. Oh, well, happy birthday. Out. Nice. That worked out well. So let's get started on this. December 11th, 1978. It was a Monday at Neeson Pharmacy. A 15-year-old boy named Robert Peist. This is Neeson Pharmacy right here. And the employee, 15-year-old Robert Peist right there. He was saving up because he wanted to buy a Jeep Wrangler. He is working there until 9 p.m. At 9 p.m., the mother's going to be there, his mother, to pick him up because it's his mom's 46th birthday. At the pharmacy, there was a supervisor of PE Systems, which is a sub subsidiary of PDM Incorporation. Which was Gacy's company. The supervisor that was there and one of the only employees, the owner, of it. He was there quoting uh, Mr. Neeson on getting new cabinets and shelving. His firm specifically specializes in pharmacy design and construction. So he's perfect for it. Mm -hmm. Now he got there around 4.30. He left, but he had to come back because he left his appointment book. He gets back around eight o'clock. He stays around, hangs around. He's talking to the employees that work there the teenagers, high schoolers, because Mr. Neeson hires high school kids to work there. Mm -hmm. Five minutes till nine o'clock, mom pulls up. Robert said he was finishing stocking and then he was going to talk to this contractor that had asked him earlier if he wants to take a side job. He's outside in his car. He just wants to talk for a little bit and I'll decide if I want the job or not. Robert did not come back from outside after nine o'clock. Her family was perplexed when Elizabeth Nest walked into the kitchen at 925 without Rob. He went off with some kind of contractor to see about a job, she explained. She went to the phone and called Neeson's. Kim Byers answered, still no Rob. Do you have any idea, asked Mrs. Nest, who Rob was going to talk to? Kim told her that the man's name was John Gacy. Mrs. Peist and the Peist family never saw their son again. Tonight, we are talking about John Wayne Gacy. John Wayne Gacy is named after the Western actor John Wayne. Through his career as a serial killer, he's killed at least 33, but probably many more, young men and boys between 1972 and 1978. 
He would lure the victims to his house with, with job offers, or he would pose as a police officer. He had a, a Crown Vic and a badge, a fake badge, and he played the part. He would, what? It's just kind of interesting to me that, like, he, that was one of his MOs was playing a, a police officer. Like, if he's such a well-known figure in the community and, like, what, like I mean, I guess his It's kind of surprising it took him that long to get in trouble impersonating a police officer, you mean? Well, no, like, the fact that he would, I mean, if people know who he is, I guess his demographic, his target, his target demographic wouldn't wouldn't know who he was but like you think that like like it would be different if 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 one of us tried to impersonate well okay well so okay for i mean so, no, 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 hold on Ch- I got chicago's a big city i mean people didn't know who he was there's a lot of contractors out there you know i thought that like he also i don't know I mean, maybe i'm misremembering i thought he, like he has I a president was, with a uh, miss quarter the uh he has a photo with the yes. pres- first lady miss quarter he was really big into the democratic circles. And he, so in that field, yeah, he was sort of well known. But like I said, Chicago is huge. Throughout his career, he raped and tortured his victims. I covered this story. You can go back and listen to it. I went, I think I have a whole episode just on the detectives and police crawling through the crawl space. And that, because that was, that was uh, horrendous on its own. Yeah. No ventilation down there under a crawl space, 26 bodies down down there under the crawl space and they were all on top of each other or the lime they're melting together and that was his house of 8213 Somerdale Avenue in Norwood Park Township he killed most of his victims by asphyxiation or strangulation all right but that's not what this story is about tonight this story is about the attorney who had represented John Wayne Gacy for the sole purpose of getting him off death row and completely eliminating him from any possibility of execution. Okay. That is who I interviewed. Her name is Karen Conti, and she's a wonderful woman. And we're going to watch some of the video here. At the time, she was a 29-year-old lawyer. So, wow. So this is in 1993 when she joined the Gacy team 14 years after he was arrested. Okay. So literally right, right at the time where he was scheduled for death row, that's when she joins the team. So we're reading from within the interview with Karen. When does the book come out? It's not out yet, correct? <sighs> it's called uh, Killing Time with John Wayne Gacy, Defending America's Most evil serial killer on death row. Um, she says in her intro, so so John got the uh, advanced reader copy. I started writing this book 27 years after my representation of John Wayne Gacy ended. As a result, I have taken liberty with many of the conversations and descriptions and have expanded them consistent with my recollection. I've changed the names of clients and characters as nobody, even to this day, likes to be associated with John Gacy. As psychology professor Dr. Rosalind Cartwright said, quote, memory is never a precise duplicate of the original. It is a continuing act of creation. I hope that as the years have gone by and additional information has come to light, my memories have acquired the patina of wisdom, life experiences, and self-reflection. That's, I, I like what, what I like that quote that yeah. she put in there about the memories, because it's true. But you know what they say, every time you remember something, you're not actually remembering 
remembering the uh, direct event. You're remembering the last time you remembered it. Oh, so that's why they I say, didn't know that. Yeah, so that's why they say that memories are not like distorted. Yes. or something. Mm-hmm. that is really interesting. Yep. All right. Well, I think I feel like that's right because when you say um, like, "What's your youngest or oldest childhood memory?" What I know or what I think I remember is like probably a home video. Oh yeah, that's a good idea. Yeah, like I don't really know what my actual first memory is because I do remember like some childhood moments from yeah. home videos. Karen Conti was 29 at the time. She was a litigation lawyer in Chicago. She's been wanting to do law since she was seven years old. Wow. And she has been adamant that capital punishment is not the answer. And and that is what this book basically revolves around. So if you believe in capital punishment, if you read this book, you just got to keep your mind open because her whole stance is getting not only John Wayne Gacy off death row, but abolishing capital punishment. She had told me in our interview that uh, we're one of the only countries that still embrace it. And even some of the third world countries look at us doing capital punishment and, and they say, like, how how could you be so brutal? Anyway, in her book, she talks about she was seven years old and she was listening on the radio, her and her father and a segment about capital punishment came up. Now, the fa- her father did believe in the death penalty, but at seven years old, Miss Conti questioned, well, wouldn't you killing someone because they killed someone? Isn't that still murder? And she remembers that as her first, one of her first childhood memories in regards to wanting to be a lawyer. Mm-hmm. I do want to ask you if you've ever had doubts because you, in my opinion, had an impossible mission. Did you ever have any doubts? Well, I don't believe in the death penalty. I never did. And as you said, since I was seven years old, I found that it was just, it didn't make sense to me, to to my Mm -hmm. little seven-year-old brain, even when my parents probably were both, you know, in favor of it. And maybe that's because I'm an empath. You know, I really Mm. am an empathetic person. I always have been, even since I was a little kid. So maybe that lends itself to it. But I I really think that the death penalty to me is just a no-go for anyone, not not just not just for people who might be innocent, not just for people who might have a claim of incompetent counsel or someone who had who came from a poor background, or even for John Wayne Gacy, even for John Gacy who didn't have any racial arguments. He didn't. He had great lawyers throughout. He was certainly guilty. His crimes were horrendous and vile. So again, to me, my moral compass stays the same on this. I don't believe he should ever be out of jail. The Gacy's of the world need to stay in there, but. Mm-hmm. To even focus the attention on him seemed to me to be wrong. He should have been put in that prison cell and we shouldn't have heard a peep from him other than the appeals that have to be filed as a matter of law. And again, one of the reasons that I thought it was important to represent Gacy was I wasn't just advocating for him. I was advocating for all the people on Illinois death row who may have arguments that were substantive. We had a situation where over a certain number of year period, we had 12 people executed and 12 people exonerated based on actual innocence. That's a bad batting average. Yeah. In your in your book, you mentioned, I forgot his name, but he's now a minister. And I mean, he he did commit the, the crime, but he's now a minister rehabilitated. And I didn't even hear about that. And this was oh. pretty recent when he was, or 
old. That's correct. In fact, uh, when I was writing the book, I, I thought about him and I Googled him and I was shocked to see that he was out of prison. Mm. He uh, Death row uh, was sort of overturned at a certain point in Illinois uh, history, but he actually was released and, he, and no one objected, including the prosecutors and the victim's family. So mm. this is a guy who was probably the most rehabilitated criminal in all of Illinois history, and he now is doing good works for, for people on the outside. That's not the normal story for people mm. on death row. I'm not naive to think that people on death row can come out and be heroes, superheroes, but this guy really turned, tururned his world around. Keep in mind, she was 29 when she represented Gacy in 1993. That is a big job to have at 29. 29 oh, yeah, years old, for yeah. sure. She's never done any cases like this before. Not only was she wow. not only like not only was she 29, her and her partner had their own practice. At Already 20, at 29. At 29. And before this, she was doing uh, law work that she didn't agree on or, or even like. It was, you know, for companies, insurance policies, wow. stuff like that. Corporate so, law. Yeah, corporate law. So she was 29 when she when she got, I mean, this is huge, yeah. you know. And, and it's also, as you'll see, like, think about yourself, a female, all you females out there. You're 29 years old. You're not only representing one of the most notorious serial killers, your name is on every paper in the nation, but you're also walking through the halls of death row where the inmates are out and about in, a, in the common area. They're all staring at you. There's times when some of these killers would come up to her and, and like talk. Hannibal, remember and, that, that scene oh, yeah. in Silence of the Lambs? Like, like, for instance, the minister I was telling you about. Yeah. He actually, before he was a minister and everything, he got exonerated off death row or he got, um, he, they put him off death row, but now, he's out now in 2018, I think. But he came up, he's a big imposing man. He came up to her asking questions, you know, just like no guards or anything. Because there's not a bunch of guards around. Yeah. Because, I mean, they think, okay, all these lawyers that come through are men. This is like the first time a woman has, you know, in in this uh, in this prison, walked through death row and is hanging out with the inmates. It's very scary to me, you know. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So. It's I, And it takes a special kind of person to want to go into criminal law, like, and be on the defense, like, and not want to just be, you know, a prosecutor. But you want to take a special kind of person to be a defense yeah. attorney. Especially for someone who is on death row and someone who's fighting against the death penalty. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's and it's also very interesting, like just going to say this one thing, not politicizing the whole thing, but like people that are on one side of this argument, the death penalty mm-hmm. argument, or are typically are on the opposite side on the um, on the reproductive rights argument. All right. So Karen's lifelong passion before she even got out of high school was true crime, just like many of many of you guys reading about serial killers she actually had to convince her partner which later became her husband that they should go in and do this Mm. he was on the fence but then she said quote don't you want to know what it's like to stare evil in the eyes so she she's the one that initiated the first contacts with john wayne gacy she also called John Wayne Gacy the, quote, poster child for the death penalty. And that's true. I mean, th- this guy has killed 33 boys. There's, there's honestly, like, no better candidate. Yeah. Right? Yeah, for, at the time, for yeah. the death penalty. Like, if you're going to execute somebody, make it the person who's executed yeah. twice its people. She, we're talking about Karen here, and we're going to get back to the video here. And it's not all about the death penalty. I asked her pretty, pretty intense questions about Gacy, too, getting inside his mind and even... 
spoil it a little bit. I've never heard this before, but there's a there's a high possibility that he didn't do this alone. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So we're going to talk about that. But her father, going back to Karen, her father was uh, an actor in Hollywood. Oh, okay. And a comedian. She was a middle child, older brother, younger sister. She first heard the word John Wayne Gacy when she was 14, when they were hunting for Robert Pice, the, the story I started with. By the way, the media portrayed them, homo, queer, etc., could almost be deemed responsible for their own deaths because of their lifestyle choices. So in the papers, if you read about John Wayne Gacy and stuff like that, and John Wayne Gacy and killers like him, they use these strong words to describe him. And it almost puts blame on the victims. Well, you know, these boys were, they were queer. So, you know, they had it coming type of thing. And that really, really ticks her off hearing that. She was never afraid of meeting John Wayne Gacy, quote, as a potential victim, I was not his type, end quote, because she's a woman. Right. And he also would not harm a person he could use and manipulate. Oh, interesting. John Wayne Gacy is the textbook example of a sociopath. So I I was really wanting to also know, you know, did he try to manipulate you in some way? In fact, when they first started talking, her name to to him, you know, as she was representing him, wasn't Karen or Miss Conti or whatever. It was Dollface. Oh, God. So that sounds right there like a, a, a term that you can manipulate someone with, you know, a term of endearment to get them close to you. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it, it must have been really scary to to be with someone like John Wayne Gacy. You're not only advocating for anti-capital punishment, but you're also doing it for probably one of the worst serial killers in existence. And I know, and you, you've written in your book, all the hate mail, all the phone calls, all the, the stuff. I mean, I just, I cannot imagine what you had been going through even back then. Are you, are you worried about any of that hate coming back up with this when you released the book? That was actually a big part of why I hesitated for all these years. Uh, mm-hmm. It was it was really a traumatic thing to represent somebody on death row. It, you know, I donated about a quarter of a million dollars of free legal services. I had all this mm-hmm. hate mail. Even judges and lawyers would shun me and treat me differently. And um, so, yeah, I did worry about that. I also worried about the victims' families. I mean, they've had to put it to rest for the last 30 years. And I know that when you bring up this issue again, it's going to maybe uh, poke a wound, you know, that has already been tried, you know, that's tried to be healed. So I had all those I had all those worries and concerns. But at the bottom line is I after all those years I'm now looking back at what happened and I'm now with all the wisdom of of my older years I'm looking at this as a story that I think is important to tell for purposes mm-hmm. of capital punishment which is no longer an issue in Illinois because it's been abolished. But also for for me as a woman, as an attorney, as a young attorney, who I you know I stood up for what I believed and I suffered consequences. But it made me stronger mm-hmm. and it put me in a position that helped me along the way in my career, in my personal life. It changed my life, and I I think the message can be that if you do something difficult and you fail miserably at it, that's not necessarily a bad thing. That resilience that you gain from an experience like this is invaluable.
in my mind, this man's immoral conduct did not justify a premeditated killing by a civilized government. That's a great quote right there. There are people, including many who are reading this, who believe that because I fought Gacy's execution, I am a bad person and I somehow condone the conduct that put him behind bars. Let's just say this plainly. I do not believe that torturing, raping, and killing innocent young men and boys is in any way acceptable behavior. I affirmatively believe that the Gacy's of the world belong in jail forever. He was an immoral, dangerous person and the only place for him was behind a solid locked door with no possibility of ever spending time in society. And one more thing, had he killed my son or brother, I could have killed him with my own hands. Yeah. All right, let's get back to her. I asked her because I, I read this in the book and I didn't know this or perhaps I did, but I didn't can't remember it because it's been so long since we covered Gacy. But he actually claimed his own innocence. Here's what happened with that. When Gacy was first arrested, despite being told it is a horrible idea by his own attorney at the time, Gacy confessed to the location of 26 boys under his crawl space. And the details are pretty spot on. He also confessed to the strangulations and how he would do it. For instance, he had this, uh, quote, rope trick, which I believe oh, yeah, other... I remember you guys talking about it. Yeah, I believe other killers kind of had the same thing where it's like the handcuff trick. Oh, check it out. It's like magic handcuffs. And then they put him, he puts him on the boy and then, oh, I guess you're not getting out kind of type yeah. of thing. I don't remember that. I remember that. Yeah. He confessed to all this, all of these murders, every one of them. And then he backtracks and says, no, I didn't do any of the murders. I only killed one boy on a bus and that was for self-defense because he is attacking me. So it, he goes from and and the way he talks about it and she mentions it in her book is he it's like he almost believes that he is innocent. And so I had asked her about that. So let's see. Because uh, he's a sociopath, though, you know? Well, I, I wanted to find out, like, does he believe he's innocent or is he just trying to manipulate like her, for example? Looking back, picturing yourself back there talking to him, when you finally broached that question, okay, how did these bodies get under your crawl space? Uh, seeing his mannerism, seeing how he talks when he when he answered that question, do you think he really started to believe that, that he has no idea how they got in there? Or maybe he was trying to manipulate you? I'm just trying to get more into the mind because, I mean, you, you spent so much time with him. And it, it seems like, you know, it seems like, I don't know... We've never gotten that side before to see what his his mind was like. AC was a manipulator and a liar. He thought he was smarter than anyone in the room. Mm -hmm. The only way to deal with him, and I had to deal with him to get his cooperation, to file certain things, to get his okay on certain strategies and timing. So I had to work with him. And the mm -hmm. only way to really work with him was to kind of manipulate him back. Mm -hmm. What was interesting is because I was the only female lawyer that he had in 14 years, and certainly the only one at the very end, um, he was a little less wary of me because I was a woman. He kind of was mm -hmm. combative with the men. And so with me, he was a little bit freer with his emotions to the extent he has any true emotions because sociopaths, as you know, um, mm -hmm. don't really have a true set of, of emotions. They, they kind of mimic what they think other people want to hear and what makes them look good. Um, but yeah, I think he was in denial. I think for so many years, I mean, you remember at the very beginning when 
he was first arrested, he confessed to his attorney. And he not only confessed, but he recounted the bodies, mm-hmm. where they were located and where he abducted them and how he killed them. So mm-hmm. he had an amazing memory for all of these murders, which were to him, you know, a happy thing, I guess. But for me, you know, by the time I got to it 14 years later, he had reiterated over and over that he's a mm. victim. And the only thing he did was guilty of was running a cemetery without a license. You know, that was his big joke. And, you know, he wasn't going anywhere. He wasn't going to tell us anything. Mm. That was really disappointing because I wanted to hear it from him, especially at the end. Come on, John, yeah. tell, tell me. I'm straight with me. Just tell me. Right. And he never did. Yeah, crazy. Running a cemetery without a license. One way of putting the fact that you have a bunch of dead bodies in your crawl space, say. but okay. Yeah. Like, I mean, like 26, that's that's so many. Yeah, so 33 was the total number, 33 plus. Oh, 33. Okay. But like, for instance, Robert Peist wasn't in the crawl space. He was thrown off a bridge, which, oh. which makes a lot of people think that there was a lot more than 33 because, I mean, how many did he throw off a bridge? Right. There were also, I believe, six or maybe eight of the crawl space victims that are still unidentified they have no clue and that so they're so what 26 under under his house and six of those are still not identified like i mean how many other people kids did he kill that no one you know what i'm saying so no one knows and he's dead now obviously yeah i asked her you know what is what's it like working with this guy well, a couple words that she said, a quote, aura of unhealthiness. He was, and you guys know what John Wayne Gacy looks like, right? Mm-hmm. He's overweight. Quote, the word dumpy came to mind, end quote. Nothing attractive. Even his blue eyes were flat and lacking in depth or warmth. Usually talkative to the fact that he doesn't even want to waste one second as you'll see in her interaction with them later, they get scolded. Her and, and her partner get scolded because they because they arrive late at, at the meeting. Get scolded I, by Gacy. Yeah. You know, he doesn't want to waste even a second. He's always talking. He is intelligent, but uneducated. And he would jump from topic to topic. He's haughty and thinks he's smarter than everyone else in the room. arrogant. Yeah. Very arrogant. But Karen did say in her book that somewhere in all that that I just explained... There is a charm there somewhere. Greg then asked a question that I thought violated all codes of how to deal with the serial killer. Hey, John, have you ever seen Silence of the Lambs? Gacy nodded. Sure have. Great movie. Did it scare you? For that, Greg received an under the table kick from me. With his vacant blue eyes, Gacy first looked at Greg and then turned to me with a frown frown of mock puzzlement. He put his head down and shook it in the negative. Nah, I wasn't scared. You have to understand, you guys. When someone like me watches a movie like that, I'm rooting for the killer. What the? I mean, I guess it's true, right? (laughs) So they're bantering and she'll talk about how he's got a very dark sense of humor. Even going to death row, even moments before... He's executed. The humor still pops up, you know. Do I have a big fan base outside type of thing? He's always wanting to quip. One of the things that, and I talk about it, but I have to be careful about is is Gacy's sense of humor. Mm, yeah. And, you know, you almost don't want to talk about it because people say, what's so funny about what he did? And that mm-hmm. obviously is not funny. But that was part of his personality. It was a big part of his personality. And I think that he used that humor to, to deflect who he really was. I think that when somebody is humorous and has, you know, makes jokes and, and has that kind of... Um, you know, that that sense of humor that that you don't you know, you like to be around somebody like that. Right. So I think that oh, yeah. helped 
helped him get away with what he got away with. You know, yeah. he was a clown. He was a prominent businessman. I mean, he was a person who wouldn't be questioned. And that sense of humor really added to it. And and again, I have a lot of that in my book, some of the humorous things mm-hmm. he said, but oh, with, yeah. the, with the idea that, you know what, some of that was just gallows humor. And mm-hmm. uh, I would be remiss in recounting the whole story if I didn't add that part. Yeah. He starts calling her doll face. As Karen said, he's got an exceptional visual memory, what is called the eidetic imagery. You know what that is? E-I-D-E-T-I-C. Eidetic. It's like it is. Like photographic memory? Yeah, it's like photographic memory, but he can remember not only visuals, but also writings and audio and everything Mm. perfectly that's how his initial confession was so accurate oh wow okay yeah with dates and everything like dates for instance oh i picked up robert peist on this day it was 5 15 or you know whatever Mm. karen also says gacy was an quote energy vampire Mm. like colin robinson do y'all know what that is yeah what is it an energy vampire someone that like sucks the energy out of the room you guys never watched that what we do in the shadows i've watched i've watched it I was like, there's a character in something. Colin Robinson from What We Do in the Shadows. And also he's a, quote, hollow husk of a human. (laughs) He's also a very hostile, hostile man. I don't like that. Him being hostile and very demanding also lets us kind of see what it was like with the victims. He's charming. He's laid back. And then all of a sudden it snaps. Just because we were familiar with the drill conducted by the disdainful prison guards did not make it less humiliating and nerve-wracking. Nothing happened quickly in this building and no one cared. It was well after 11.15 a.m. when we were finally admitted by the buzzer into the condemned unit visitor's bullpen. Only about five guests were visiting. All appeared to be friends or family of the inmates. Gacy was in the same cinder block wall cubicle as before. He appeared to be very agitated. Where the hell have you used guys been, he demanded. His face was red. His brow was visibly wet with sweat. I told you to be here right at nine. He was not just agitated. He was hostile. So this was the anger I read about. So there you go. His mood mood changes were extreme. Once he showed them, quote, and this is something that no one's ever heard. One time, John Wayne Gacy showed her what he called, quote, the body book, which was a complete dossier of all of his victims. And the reason he mapped all this out is because he was trying to find the, quote, true killer, even though he was. But he mapped out all the details of the victims and that book was never seen again. So I don't know what happened to it. At some point, Greg testily told Gacy to stop and that his criticism was not productive. When the barbs continued, Greg reiterated that he was not going to hear this kind of talk. Gacy's earlier anger reappeared and enraged, he grabbed a pint of the prison's disgusting orange drink and threw it across the table, smacking Greg in the face and splashing the syrupy beverage all over his tie. Greg, who is an imposing figure at 6'1 and 250 pounds, was not one to back down from any man, even one with only a few months left to live. All right, thank you. It reminds me of when she said orange drink. Have you seen that Dave Chappelle skit? Yes. Oh, yeah. Give me that purple drink. Uh, All right. So when talking to females, his patterns became softer and more feminine, chatty and girly. He's a chameleon. He can adapt to his audience. And that also makes him a great businessman. He's a man capable of killing a boy after torturing him for hours, then eating a ham sandwich over his still warm body. He says the only thing he's guilty of is running a cemetery without a license. 
However, another thing that she brought up that I don't think anyone's ever talked about was the possibility that he was making snuff films. And I've seen this so many times. We've covered cases where they were making snuff films. One of the big things about this book that I haven't seen mentioned anywhere else, and in fact, it was not mentioned anywhere else because it was it was not on the evidence roster, you know, the search warrant evidence collection mm-hmm. roster. And it seems like it was purposely omitted was sophisticated movie equipment. It was never listed in the evidence collected. Now, this goes into a territory that there could be some other people involved. And we're talking high level politicians, businessmen, well-known persons like that. So I had Jeffrey Epstein. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I had asked her, aren't you afraid of coming out with this? Because it hasn't been no, no one's ever no one has ever broached this point right here. But we've seen snuff film creators before. For instance, David Parker Ray, he was making snuff films. Otis Tool, I don't know if we've done where he's making snuff films. I don't know if we did. Okay, well, we'll do it eventually. But Otis Tool, he was making snuff films for the Hand of Death cult, which is a maybe fictional cult, but other serial killers have also have also claimed to be a part of this. It's like, and they fund themselves through snuff films. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. There's a book called um, Program to Kill. It goes into all these conspiracies. But oh. I found that really interesting because why would they omit this collection of high sophisticated camera equipment? Not only that, as you'll see here in a second, there were a lot of times when these boys went missing and murdered, many showing that he was out of town working on a construction project. He was meticulous with his receipts and his ledgers, checking into hotels, the receipts, the the all his dinners. He kept all the receipts. But yet this boy or whoever goes missing and ends up under the crawl space, which John Wayne Gacy can't even fit under to begin with. All of this stuff has never been said before. So I did ask her, you know, is she worried about that coming out with that? There was no question that other people were involved in these crimes. There was was one victim who actually got away from Gacy. He was very badly injured and tortured. Mm -hmm. And he said that there were lights going on and off. Mm -hmm. There was a camera or a film going on. And there were two people. Yeah. And there were two people in the room. So there were two young men who lived with Gacy who testified at trial that they dug the trenches in the crawl space Mm -hmm. under his house. It is inconceivable to me that they didn't know why these trenches were being dug. Mm -hmm. That it's inconceivable to me that Gacy got down there. He was very portly to get get down there and put those bodies in. Mm-hmm. Um, I oh, think they were I, yeah, I think they were involved in committing some of the crimes and I think they were involved in putting the bodies down there. Were they victims? Like they were like were they forced to do it? Were they yeah. working for him or Yeah, they were those those were working for him and they the two guys I, I kind of remember what she's talking about, teenagers. They didn't know what they were digging at first. And then they kind of figured it out, but they were basically digging their own graves, you know, or would be. But however, what she said earlier struck me because this I've never heard of this before, but there were that victim that had got away when he was blindfolded and handcuffed. And I don't believe John Wayne Gacy was even in town. I'm I'm not 100 percent on that, but he saw lights going off some sort of camera equipment, multiple people talking. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So she said right there that she believes he definitely did not act alone. Wow. Which is an incredible statement. And yes, this is, so his murders happened, what, 73 to 78? Yeah, this is a long time ago. No one's, you know, everyone's kind of 
not over it, but everyone who would be connected is probably dead. But still, to come out with that is is risky, I believe, you know, for her to do that. But I don't know. Yeah, true. And and not just playing devil's advocate here. This is one victim who got away, correct? Was he the only victim that got away? Because we're taking and, and I am like he went through a very traumatic event, obviously. Like, is that and we're talking accomplice? about no, no. Like we were talking about memory earlier, you know, like, is is that accurate? Were there other people there? Or was this something like how can we put how can we put like unfortunately we don't have other victims we don't have the 30 plus or you know total amount of people to corroborate his story like like I, and yes it's likely that he was not working alone totally or maybe he the other two people that were in the room were the people that were living with him that were you know maybe they had to do this stuff but like mm. you know this is one person's story well so you don't think maybe there no was i'm not sa- no i'm just you know saying you have to think about all kinds of different things when you have one true, true. person to go off of it because we have this one victim like they could say anything well, well let, let yeah. me let me put the other side to that we know john wayne gacy is an incredible businessman in fact, this is going to come up because it was in her book. Karen and her partner weren't initially hired to be representing him to get off death row. John Wayne Gacy hired Karen to take care of his business ventures in prison. There were two. Mm. He had, and, and this is, and what I'm trying to say here is snuff films would make him a lot of money and he had a lot of connections. So this would be something he would do. He had two ventures in prison. Obviously, his art, decoration, Right. You know, he's an artist. And in fact, you know, in in Charleston, uh, the art came down here. Yeah. Yeah. And not only that, he actually set up a one nine hundred number in prison that had his recorded voice claiming his innocence. And that one nine hundred number people would pay to call in. So he hired 900 mix lot kick them nasty thoughts. He hired Karen to fight against the prison system for trying to stop those business ventures while he was locked up for 14 years. And so he can recover the money that he was making from these. But, you know, quickly she was like, you you seen her talk. She wanted to go for the full thing because she she really believed she could get him off death row. Wow. So she had to convince Gacy that, hey, I, you know, I'm not just someone to do your business ventures. I'm here for the full thing. But what I'm trying to say with that is making snuff films is right up his alley since he's doing it anyway. People are paying good money. Plus, he's got pretty high connections in the political space. He is mm. high in the Democratic circles. I mean, he's got a photo with the former President Carter's first lady, Rosalind. They have a photo together because he was providing security at a big Democratic event for them. They hired this guy who, as Karen will talk about, had already had a long rap sheet of sexual assault and rape against young men and boys and has been locked up before plenty of times. And it seems like, as we'll talk about more conspiratorial, that either police were looking the other way or they were hiding it on purpose. And if they were hiding it on purpose, it does make sense why the evidence never reflected a high sophisticated camera set. I don't know. 
I, I don't think anyone's said that before or came out as an expert and said that, but uh, there's some potential backlash because these claims are, it could have been higher politicians or, or higher people in power involved. Are you worried about that? People reading that in your book and getting any t- type of backlash from that? When these crimes were committed, it was, you know, the mid seventies to late seventies. So a lot of these people are dead um, mm. who were in power at the time. But, you know, you, if you look at the facts and you look at the fact that he was incarcerated in Iowa for mm-hmm. sodomizing a young man and then threatening, mm-hmm. uh, there were some other possible charges in Iowa that I'm now learning happened, but they, ne- they were never charged. Then he comes to mm-hmm. Illinois. Over and over again, there are calls and there are complaints and a, and a victim escapes and boys are gone missing who are last seen at his house. And the police just don't connect the dots. Now, again, it was a different time. We didn't have the way of tracking missing boys and in different states and connecting the dots. But still, why was this guy in politics? Why was he allowed to stand next to Rosalind Carter? That's one of the most famous pictures. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. See. Where were the Secret Service? They're supposed to know who the felons are. And Gacy was a felon. So yeah. I don't know if someone was protecting him, if people were protecting him. And remember, you know, porn, you know, on the internet, there was no internet. So yeah. if people had predilections for doing these, these bizarre and horrible things. Maybe there was a group of, of men who were engaging in these things and kind of protected each other. I don't know. Again, and I'm sure that I'm never going to have all of the facts here unless there's going to be a dying declaration by someone. Yeah. I see what you're saying. If it's just one person, yeah. But I was trying to make it back to that. Like, this is something he would do. Right. No, absolutely. Yeah. But yeah, that's a really good well, point. Well, it seems more likely, too, that another person would be involved if he was out of state when certain people went missing. Like, right. They still ended up in his basement. I know. But maybe someone else did the snatching. I don't know. L- let me get a little bit more into... Just real quick, his background, and can I go through it real quick? His father growing up would call him a queer, and he would beat him, call him a mama's boy. The night he was arrested, as I said, he gave a full account, except, and, but later he changed it that he just killed one person in self-defense. He did this handcuff trick, and this is the handcuff trick. He would then offer to show the victim how to perform the trick. With his victim manacled and unable to free himself, he would say words to the effect, the trick is, you have to have the key. Gacy referred to this devious act as the handcuff trick. He would sit on their chest and force them to perform oral sex on them. He would torture them, burning them with cigars, and he would even make them imitate a horse. So he would flip them over and he would be like, with the, you know, the rain, the horse reins. Weird. Or whatever. And I it would be. Like nay, nay, I, nay. Yeah, nay, nay. <laughs> so the rope thing would be in their mouth and he would pull them back like, oh, type of thing. Yeah. Oh, no. He, I do not like that. He, he, would, put, he would get on top of them and like ride them. Yeah. With the with this leather strap in their That's mouth. That's unfortunate. He was a large man. Mm-hmm. Like, I would never do that to someone. Well, I hope not, Jen. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus Christ. I also hope not. <laughs> well, I mean, like, would, like try to ride them even if I wasn't trying to kill them. You know what I mean? Oh. Like, you have, like, a... no. You just got to no. find the right person, Jen. You'll find the right person. So. Stop. Huh? He would rape them with bottles, dildos, and other things. He would drown them to the point of death, revive them. He would do this hammer thing where he tightens his hammer around their, a string around their neck. 
it wouldn't kill them. They would still get enough air to breathe, but they would convulse for an hour or two. So it it does make sense. <laughs> I'm sorry, Wolfie. Oh, crap. I've completely misunderstood all the time when men ask me to ride them. I've been doing it wrong. <laughs> <laughs> If you That's funny, man. Let's do it right. That was fucking funny, man. Oh my god. He was tried under insanity, although he hated that. He didn't want he said he was not insane, but his lawyers tried to push the insanity defense. So JW, your defense was insanity. Let's talk about the evidence the jury heard. John told us he did not want to talk about the trial. It was a travesty of justice. Anyone who knows me knows I'm perfectly sane. I was working 20 hour days, building thousands of buildings, making lots of money, employing hundreds of people. All those bullshit shrinks didn't know nothing. They said I had multiple personalities. Total crap. This is pretty interesting right here because he said he was so adamant that he's not insane. It It's almost like he wanted to fully claim all those victims. Like, these are the ones I did. There was two teenagers that went missing and were found dead. And the state tried to blame John Wayne Gacy for it. And he just he just threw his hands up and said, this is bullshit. This is, you know, don't blame me for this. I didn't do it. Very adamant. Even though if he would have done it, John Wayne Gacy would have been 14 at the time. So they were trying to blame missing people on him to get them off the sheets, to get the murders off the sheet. Mm. You know, but he was real adamant that these are mine, nothing else. Like I, you know, like a serial killer, like almost like a trophy. These are mine. Well, that's kind of like less sociopathic. I feel like maybe if he was a sociopath, he would have been like, yeah, they're all mine. Does that make sense? Mm, It does. But also he claimed that he was innocent except for the the killing of Timothy McVoy, a young man who was on the Greyhound bus station. And that's when he, quote, stabbed the fucker because he was he felt threatened for his life. So that's the only killing he's done, if you ask him. Interesting, because that is definitely not like the M.O.s of all the people that were found under his house. He has no idea, quote, who those bodies were, end quote, beneath his crawl space. This waffling view of his father was seen by psychiatrists as lack of integration. Most of us have a code or rudder that what we say consistent for the most part. So when you get to know someone, you can generally predict what they think and how they're going to react. Gacy had no such compass. He said the first thing that came to his mind or what he thought someone wanted to hear. I also say the first thing that comes to my mind. That you do. We know. We study the differences between first and second degree murder, sex crimes, defenses of intoxication and mistake, what it means to conspire and to aid and abet. Little did I know that my favorite lecture, the insanity defense, would come in handy representing the highest profile client of my career. Moral of the story, pay attention in school. You never know when a subject will be important. I still haven't used geometry, but the insanity defense, I have. Well, Professor Boyle and I briefly discussed over telephone whether Gacy's insanity defense could have been successful. Gacy's position at trial some 14 years before my involvement was that he was insane at the time of the crimes and therefore was not guilty by reason of insanity. Many people ask me, how can a person like Gacy not be insane, killing and burying kids under his house? I once asked Gacy about his trial lawyer's decision to lodge the insanity defense. He became agitated and complained, the insanity defense is bullshit. Why, John? Well, it doesn't work. 
Take Jeffrey Dahmer. Now, I don't know, Jeff, but here's a guy who wakes up in the morning. His body is encrusted with the blood and there's a severed head in his fridge. And his first thought is, hey, I want to fuck that torso next to me. If that guy isn't insane, I'd hate to run into that to the guy who is. Gacy could not have said it better. The insanity defense is not very useful to killers. Yeah, it didn't work for Dahmer, obviously. Right. I, mean, I didn't. I very didn't, interesting. Yeah. I mean, but we I say that all the time. It's like, well, don't you kind of have to be crazy to like be murdering all these people? Well, well so all right. The insanity plea is is more complicated than, oh, he's crazy. There, there's two parts of it. Number one, you have to not you you cannot know the difference between right and wrong. Okay. Bad. And number two is you have well, number two is you have no control over what happened. Like you you don't remember it or you know you were in a psychosis or whatever. Okay. So in those conditions, yeah, they neither of them. Would yeah, be the J- Jeffrey Dahmer they knew, right. was knew was wrong because he he uh, specifically went a whole year without without doing it because you know his religion. Right. So I mean, but you know, insanity defense works for like you remember that guy in uh, like the Greyhound bus guy. You yes, know? right. He, he was in a state of psychosis. He was okay. in a state of psychosis. So no matter if he knew right or wrong or not, that doesn't matter. He has no idea what happened. Okay. So he's insane. Also, the guy in uh, also the guy in Canada, the kid that stabbed five friends at a party in like thirty seconds, killed all five of them. And then got uh, released for being yeah, insane. I like vaguely remember. There's a lot one. of Canada cases. That <laughs> I'm like really okay with this. Yes. You, at the very beginning of our podcast, we had a uh, stance on Canada. Remember? Yeah. Sure do. I think we still do. Like. My stance on Canada still lives on. Okay, I've been meaning to ask you, JW, what's up with the clown obsession? You seem to identify with. They ca- they call them JW. Looks like it. Yeah, JW. John. Yeah, JW. Well, I know that I know those are his initials, but I didn't know. I didn't realize they called him JW. His voice changed to its softer edged version, and he became animated. He told me that he always loved clowns in the circus because they were so sneaky. They were always up to no good. And kids just didn't expect them to have hand buzzers, flowers appearing from behind their backs or water squirting from their noses. He told me he was very careful in how he applied his clown makeup. When why he used certain colors and an upside down grin with sharp corners at the rounded rather than rounded ones. He thought sharp corners made for a scarier appearance, which he favored. Jesus. He, he was talking about that sometimes when he goes and does a clown performance at a birthday party or whatever, that sometimes... Oh, oh go ahead. Sorry, I, I, I'm, I'm reading because it doesn't say what to read. At times, Gacy was good, happy Pogo, and at others, he was sad, evil Pogo. I asked him how he chose the difference between the two. That was simple, he, explain, he explained. It depended on how the children he was entertaining behaved and whether they were good or bad. I loved hearing how John Wayne Gacy was an arbiter of the morality of children. When kids were polite and non-aggressive at parties and parades, he handed out candy with a smile. But if the children were greedy and reached for more, he would pinch them hard, swear at them, and threaten to kill them. Dang. When the child screamed and cried to his parents, he would deny what he had done. He always got away with it because, according to him, clowns get away with murder. Oh, I don't like that. All right. (laughs) Okay, let, let's Could you imagine just being at a party and your kid coming? Well, not like you guys have, but if you had kids and they're like, Mama, that clown threatened to kill me. Like, as I said before, Gacy had over 20 appeals and he wanted a First Amendment lawyer just for his business ventures, which Karen was. The first issue, they were actually making Gacy pay rent in the prison, which is kind of fucked up. 
He says, quote, huh. fuck the state. Why should I have to pay to live in this shithole? The second issue was his 900 number. The pay and rent was part of Illinois room and board law. So I, that's interesting. But, I think that maybe maybe more criminals should be made to pay to live in prison. I mean, yeah, but half of them don't have money. Half The reason most of them are in there is because they're poor. Serial killers? I mean, there's not a lot of serial killers. I'm talking about like regular thieves petty, and stuff. Petty, petty crimes, you mean? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. All right. Petty. So anyway, she was actually tasked with his frivolous affairs, like his painting. So I asked her about that. But anyway, what I was going to say is a few years ago, I remember there was an art exhibit and guess whose paintings were there. And, and I believe somebody bought them and burned them. I I, yes. I don't remember the His details. but Art Deco. Yeah, yeah. You remember and, him? He bought up a bunch of paintings and mm-hmm. did a bonfire. Yeah. Yeah, because there were protests uh, for his paintings. They were showing them in a gallery, you know. And do, do you still get the the one that he, uh, I guess you do because it's a photo in the back of the book. And um, I, I think it was interesting when you said in your book that uh, a painting needs to find its own home and you kind of just threw it down in the basement for a while and then a year later or whatever you realize that you actually put it right by the crawl space which is pretty eerie in itself and, and here's the and i have three of them actually i have two that one is uh skull clown it's horrible oh yeah the other one is pogo the clown and then the third mm-hmm. one is the one that he made especially for my birthday which oh. wasn't you know wasn't one that he kind of mass produced and um what was really interesting and this is not in the book is that i lived in a very old house um mm-hmm. Was built in the uh, 1920s, and uh, the house is, was totally solid. There was never any leakage for all the almost you know the century that I lived there, or century that it was around. And at some point, there started to be seepage, and it seeped all over the basement except for the, where those paintings. Oh, were. what? Oh, that is crazy. I know. Again, you know, I I've had people say, "Yeah, Karen, that's like," but it was just bizarre because if you saw where the water was, it was everywhere except yeah. there. <laughs> Oh, that's creepy. <laughs> yeah, that's creepy, man. That's like crazy. That. I don't yeah. like that. I like her. She seems really cool. Yeah, she was really fun to talk to. And she's very nice. Like she, uh, I was going through her publisher at first, e- even after this interview. And then she had emailed me privately and was like, you know, th- it was, you're so great. Uh, I can't wait to come down to Charleston and ask nice. me. Yeah, so. Uh, let me see. Well, that would be great. Another, we'll, we'll all go out. Yeah, let me know. Another interesting thing I found about all these death row cases that I didn't know is that the prosecution lawyers would write these, quote, briefs. And what they do is if a death row inmate appeals, it's almost like the prosecution is already expecting it. So they would draft up a template to rebuke the appeal and basically change a few things, tweak some things and have it submitted the very same day as the appeal comes in. And and that's what started happening with Gacy. I, I found that very interesting that they would do that. Anyway, it's kind of like copy paste and you just change the facts about each case. Yeah. Karen also became the PR representative, not for Gacy specifically, but for abolishing capital punishment, an impossible task when you're working for Gacy. But she talks about in her book, you know, 29, she had to learn how to do this. If you're you notice how she's an incredible speaker, public speaker, she went to classes during this time. So while she was doing all this legal work, she was also attending vocal classes. It 
you know, I think Gacy's the pull because mm-hmm. no one knows who I am and no one wants to read about me. But the Gacy part of it made me different. It branded me, right? And yeah. so, but the story around it is, you know, how I got treated differently as a woman, how, you know, I interacted with the public about this, how I used it to my advantage, how I dealt with someone who was evil, how I, you know, navigated these things. And I think that it really, it, it's applicable to other people. It's not just my story that someone goes, okay, that's your story. I think you can take a lot away from this, especially mm-hmm. young people might be really interested in knowing what it's like to stand up for something and then, you know, really use it to your advantage. And, and also every step of the way, excellence. You know, if you're going to speak on television, learn to do it. Mm-hmm. You know, if yeah. you're going to, you know, if you're going to, if you're going to represent somebody, like do it well, do it, do give your, give it your 100%. And when you look back, like you asked me, would I do something different? I actually wouldn't because I mm. did it the best I could. I, I'm, it's really cool, though, to hear like it actually, even though he was still executed, it still opened a ton of doors for her career. Right. Yeah. I mean, she was saying that she I mean, her friends and family were turning on her, you know, Wow. because I mean, you, look, you look you who represent him. Yeah. Look who you're representing. You're telling me that this guy should not it, be. It reminds me a lot of when be- you interviewed Jack Sperling, Pee Wee Gaskin's lawyer. Right. Because mm-hmm. I think it was. Was he also his death row attorney? Jack? Uh, I think so. Yeah, I think he was just his overall defense attorney not necessarily but, death or like th- I so thought, i thought it was so Ga- well no so gacy gacy has a lot of money or had a lot of money so he had two attorneys for him defense attorneys and then now he's got two more just to get him off death row so he had four total but he had a lot more before that you know just had a quick question for was her when she refers to like her partner in the case, Greg, is that her husband now? Is that yeah, like they they were a they were a legal team mm-hmm. and couple. Exactly. Yeah. Cool. A legal team. Power couple. A legal team first like and us. then they became uh, married and they've been married ever since. Oh, that's nice. But so let, let me talk about her arguments right quick to get this guy off to get Gacy off death row. One of them, the first one she used, which I thought was brilliant, was the method of faulty execution. All right. Her argument that she put in front of the court system was that lethal injection, which is what Illinois was using, actually violates the Eighth Amendment, which is the Eighth Amendment says something like you can't torture someone Hmm. to put them to death. A, she she writes in her book, and I'm going to cover this guy eventually, but a man named Fred Luchter, which is sounds like a German name, he is the one who invented this, this legal lethal injection machine. However, it hardly ever worked and still doesn't really work very well. Is this the same lethal injection that is used today? Yeah, it's the same one. So it's a three-step system. It you it sounds so so weird. It's like you're I feel like you're about to sell me something and it's a three step system, but it it's kinda amazing. Like, kinda like in Reno nine one one where they have the ads for those different things. Yeah. You know what I'm yes. About? Yes. That's exactly it. Yes. And I think your your book will sway the opinion of a lot of people, especially here in the South. Uh, we just uh, adopted the firing squad. So we're, you know, I, I don't know if you've heard about the recent case. The man was, there's a new uh, method. I think it's like nitrous yes. oxide. It's supposed to be incredibly painful. That was one of, one of the other things I learned in your book. When you think lethal injection, you think, okay, he's just going to fall asleep. And, you know, it, it doesn't work half the time, as you, as you were saying. Um, I can't 
can't remember the guy's name. He was uh, the guy that invented it, Frederick uh, Luchter. Luchter, Luchter, a Holocaust denier. He invented this thing. It's like a three a three stage process, as you were talking about, to inject the patient. And if the first two do, don't work, it could be incredibly painful. And I, I don't think a lot of people know that, honestly. I think uh, about a lot of people. That. I don't think a lot of people care to tell yeah, you. Yeah. But you know what's interesting about these methods of execution? You know, we have this Eighth Amendment that says you can't uh, have cruel mm. and unusual punishment. Well, mm-hmm. killing to me is cruel and unusual, but not so. Not according to the Supreme Court. But you know, again, these methods of execution they might be palatable for us to see, mm-hmm. but not not in reality. And you know, the most the least painful method I think I talk about this in my book is the guillotine. Mm-hmm. And the firing squad is is pretty um, uh, painless. But nobody wants to see a head rolling around. No one wants mm. to see someone's head blown off because maybe then people would start to think maybe we shouldn't be doing these executions, you know? Mm. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good point. So how it works is something uh, like this. The first injection is a chemical that is supposed to put you to sleep. The second injection is a chemical that paralyzes your muscles herbal Herbal unlife matt says clever and the third injection is a chemical that actually puts you to death the the reason they just don't do the third one first is because no one wants to watch someone being put to death with just that third one because it's so painful and so you're watching someone flop around like a fish because this chemical is burning their insides out So that's the reason they do that. But that in itself, that in itself provides you with the clear and simple conclusion Uh, that it is extremely torturous. Okay. Did you see what I'm saying? Yes. Because most people think it's just, oh, they just inject them and they die. Right. So can I, oh, this is, this is a question I don't want to necessarily ask, but like when like an animal needs to be euthanized, do they use the same thing? Uh, I don't think so. I don't don't know, but thank you for ruining my day. No, I don't think they use the same thing. No, because it's it's very. That's peaceful. what I thought. So, but so like, okay, so if that's a peaceful no. method, why wouldn't they use that method on humans? Maybe it's uh, different. Maybe that chemical can't kill humans. I don't know. Someone can answer that. Kind of the same process. The animal or the human, they're not actually suffering because, as I said, they're asleep and then their muscles are completely paralyzed. If it works, however, it I would imagine a dosage too in an animal, like it's not like it's going to F up. Right. Yeah. It's sometimes I, I would never want an animal to suffer. That's right. my sometimes the humans who've murdered people. Eh, I don't really care as much. Sometimes the chemicals, like, for instance, the second stage doesn't work. It doesn't put your muscles to sleep and you and you flop around like a fish. Sometimes the first one doesn't work and you feel everything. You know what I'm saying? The system was developed by a guy named Fred Luchter which was a very prominent, very adamant, by the book, Holocaust denier. That's his stance. He was a Holocaust oh, denier. God. So the system that we use in America was invented by a Holocaust denier. Which is interesting because like, when you think about, it's a kind of a hot topic, like euthanasia, right? Mm-hmm. For people that are choosing Yeah, like to die. what do they use? This? I don't imagine that they would use this. 
But again, this is science that has improved over the years. We're talking about in the early 90s here with true. Casey. That's true. It's and been 30 years. 30 yeah. years ago. So, I, I mean. The American capital punishment system for lethal injection uses this method, which should be illegal because it violates the Eighth Amendment, not only because it's supposed to be torturous, but because it was invented by a Holocaust denier who invented his machine on research done by Nazis to euthanize Jews. Yeah, that's bad. And yeah. and so not only does it violate... I did not know this. Not only does it viola- violate the torture law, it also violates international law as well. When was lethal injection made the premier, if you will, or the, the chosen Method means of, of, execution? of... Yeah, of execution versus, um, you know, like the chair or well, it depends uh, firing on the state. squad or the firing squad is yeah. supposedly is the most humane but yeah we just i don't know if you guys have been watching headlines but there's a new method that includes like nitrous oxide gas which is supposed to be very painful it's very painful and i mean yeah the guy's a murderer because someone was tested on it and he survived and it was nitrous oxide like laughing gas no it was i don't know if it's nitrous oxide or not that, that would be a way to go that's what i'm saying <laughs> Nitrous oxide is laughing gas. Yeah. But no, I think it was like nitrogen something or yeah, it 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 wasn't laughing gas. It was like meant to poison you. But also like it makes you suffocate. Oh, oh, that doesn't sound good. The reason we use certain methods is because there's an audience, right? All the family members. Nobody wants to see even their own murderer have their head roll off and like hit you in the foot like that's just it's really gory france just like not recently as in the past like 20 years but like in this century or not this century last century in the early 1900s didn't they still use the guillotine oh yeah yeah. we did a whole episode on that yeah they did yeah first case was in 1982 of the lethal injection interesting i think it was like mostly electric chair before that all right. So well, interesting that they use the lethal injection and then they, but like we're talking about Holocaust deniers, correct? And nobody deserves to, to die like that. I mean, you know me, I'm not pro death penalty, but what about like gassing people to death, like the gas chamber? Like, would that, would that be more Painful? or less humane than lethal injection? Yeah. But you got to remember, like, it's not for them. It's for the audience. Like if you gas someone, they're going to be, yeah, no, the audience doesn't want to see that. They just just want to see someone alive and then dead. They don't want to see him well, moving been, around. I actually am an audience. There shouldn't uh, that shouldn't be allowed. Well, it no. It's for for uh, they they filmed and I remember watching Timothy McVeigh's lethal injection. I, yeah, on TV. Yeah, I mean that was broadcast. Yeah, man, you, you got to keep in line. So I do not remember him. Remember they hung flailing uh, around or anything like that. Saddam Hussein was hanged and that was oh, live. Yeah, remember, I remember he was that. like oh, yeah. he was flailing around. Yeah. I remember correctly. Yeah. Was that on American TV or it came on the internet after? I don't, I don't know, know, but, but right. I do remember the Timothy McVeigh one. With with the lethal injection, Charles Walker, chairman of anesthesia department at Northwestern University Medical School, predicted that this method would paralyze the victim, which would merely stop the prisoner from screaming at the, quote, extreme pain in the form of severe burning sensation caused by the potassium chloride injection. So he is saying that we don't know because no one's ever survived it, but most likely they just they are being tortured under extreme pain, but they can't move because they're paralyzed. You know, it paralyzes them. So they're just like sitting there like, fuck, this hurts like fuck. Oh, you know, literally 
What about morphine? That's what I'm saying. What about like you give them, you know, you give them the same stuff that you give before you go on under the knife and then you Add kill morph- them. Yeah. Yeah. Like anesthesia. Right. Or morphine. All right. Let's let's see. Like, what I'm trying to them- make it more humane. OK, let's see what she says. Oh, no. But then at the same time, like if we're talking about the death penalty, like we're talking about people who do, who are judged to be able to, to deserve to die. That's their sentence. So like, should we care? I'm playing devil's advocate. I'm not saying that I don't care. You're the one that's like pro-life like and shit. I am pro-life. I am pro-life. I don't believe in killing people. I'm pro-death. I don't believe, I don't believe that you, I don't believe in killing people. I don't. But like, but, but again, like I said. Oh, so you're not, you're not, so so you're glad the abortion law was. uh, No, no, no. Let's not get into this place. (laughs) Thank you. That was a low blow, dude. A lot of stories you mentioned in your book, uh, forgot one specifically, a, a man was on death row. I think his name was Hernandez. Yes. And he was completely exonerated. Stuff like that makes you really, like even someone like me who grew up in a, a capital punishment, a pro-capital punishment household, it makes you really at least step back, you know, and think 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 about it all the way through. So I yeah. think that's, I think your book does that excellent. And, and, and the one final thing is like, you know, we had only 25 people executed last year. So we're using it less and less in the country. And I think that instead of saying, why abolish it? We should say, why should we use it? Mm, I love that. Yeah, that's yeah. great. Because when you go to foreign countries and I've been to 50, mm-hmm. uh, most of them, even places that are, you think are a little backward, say, mm-hmm. I can't believe you guys are still executing people. How <gasps> barbaric. You're the yeah. free, you know, the number one country for freedoms and you're still executing people. So I think that we're an anomaly. And I think, I think at some point it's going to go away. And I think this young generation is not going to have the stomach for that's a good point that's a really good point the second argument which is also really interesting was saying okay okay maybe whatever because they denied you know it is morally okay to put them to death fine the second argument is putting someone to death is technically a medical procedure is it not it is a medical procedure i thought that was very interesting and a medical procedure must be performed by a what doctor by a physician according to law and they have a hippocratic oath exactly doctors are prohibited in taking part in execution because it violates the hippocratic oath which is do no harm do no harm so this is a catch 22 mm. that makes perfect sense does it not and that was a, an incredible argument she put that forward. is that is so the commission uh the uh, commission inter-american commission on human rights agreed with her they said quote if used illinois lethal injection machine would violate international law but yet the state denied it and the author says Quote, of course he is guilty, but capital punishment is wrong even for him. So the author is, uh, I mean, she's 29 years old putting putting these arguments that are very thought provoking. She is an incredibly intelligent woman. Because you mentioned the Eighth Amendment, and and I, I do agree with you there. It's inhumane torture, basically what it is. I think you said that in your book. But also, you made another really interesting point, and this was one of your arguments. And I know it, it, it not that it failed, but it got turned down when you said, well, okay, well, um, execution is a, a medical procedure. Okay, so a doctor has to do it. Oh, but wait, the Hippocratic um, Hippocratic Oath, he can't. So it's a, it's a catch-22. That was one of the uh, defenses you used. 
use. I thought that was brilliant, by the way. Uh, yeah, I'd like to take credit for that, but, <laughs> but it's, you know, it, it, it's been an argument that has been made. And, you know, the problem with representing Gacy and using all these great creative defenses is that, as I've said a number of times in the book, bad facts make bad law. Meaning, I will tell you that there was no way that even the best argument in the world was going to win one point when it came mm. to Gacy. Why? Because judges are elected. No judge wants to be the one who says, yeah, that really does make sense. I'm going to overturn a conviction or I'm going to stay the execution. That person would never be retained or elected again. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we were using up some really good defenses. And as you know, in the law, once some a court has ruled on something, that becomes precedent. Mm -hmm. So some of the other uh, inmates who want to maybe make those arguments again now cannot make those arguments successfully because we ruined it by using it for Gacy. Yeah. And that's that's another thing. I hope you don't think you failed in in this mission because like you said it was it, now looking back it's, and nothing would have changed it but I was going to ask is is there anything you would have done differently any strategies you would have tried or anything you would have said anything even to get him a stay of execution anything looking back now 30 uh, years later actually no uh, we had uh, help um, I had a team we had a team of lawyers mm -hmm. we had help from some other resources um, ACLU and the uh, death penalty information organization so we had a lot of help. And, you know, one one of the things that I have to say about this is that I can't, as a defense lawyer, make justice. I, and, and neither can a prosecutor. Yeah. But my theory is that if everyone in the whole system does his or her job, the prosecution is, is aggressive, the defense is zealously advocating, the judge is impartial, the jury follows the jury instructions, if all of those things happen, then justice usually gets done. And I will walk away from the Gacy representation knowing that he had the most zealous representation he could have had. And that's all we can ask. That's all we can ask. I love that. I love that. Argument three was Gacy needed a new trial new sentencing and new evidence review, but none of that worked, obviously. So now we're going to May 9th, 1994, the night before the execution. And this is what Gacy says. How many thrill seekers are out there on the lawn waiting for me to die? He asks, basking in the idea that he is still that he still commands the public's morbid interest. More than you killed, John, quips the tallest guard, causing the rest of the group to chuckle nervously, welcoming the common relief from the tension of the day. The last meal, deep fried shrimp, french fries, and Diet Coke. So I guess he didn't eat KFC. Oh man, I meal. thought he did have fried chicken. Because when you said that earlier, I was like, this sounds like Gacy, but we already covered Gacy, so I didn't guess Gacy. Shram, that's an excellent question. She asked, sorry, I might have missed it. Did she witness his death? No, she was not allowed, or any of his attorneys, something with the law, the attorney are not allowed to hmm. be present in the execution. Interesting. That's a really good question. I didn't know that either until I, I read the book. I didn't know that, yeah. But but she was up with them until they took them away. So then then it's like family. I would say family and friends, but you know, family. It's like the, the families of the yeah, yeah. victims, yeah. Guards prevent suicide while he walks to the chamber. Quote, how embarrassing it would be if Gacy cheated the state out of its right to execute him. The warden, who they were cordial with each other, 
care for a smoke, John? And Gacy says, quote, shit, no, that stuff will kill you. It's funny that Karen mentioned this in her book. I, I would never think about this, but you, you're about to get executed. So, you know, what do they do? Well, they have to swab it with alcohol. Why? Are they worried about infection? I mean, you're about oh, to die. Yeah. I mean, what the? Well, it's, but they know, still, still do that. Medical, it's still a medical procedure. And if it's a Hippocratic Oath thing, then like you want to make sure that it's clean. Clean for what? The guy's about to die. You know, it's just weird that they... Oh, it's so important to wipe it with alcohol before they stick you. It's just, yeah, it's no, just that's a good makes point. it sound kind yeah. of backwards. Dude, I'm for the death penalty. So, uh, you know, I'm not trying to push anything or, or the other. This is just, I'm reading her words, you know. So she talks about how the needle goes into his vein, allowing the innocuous saline drip to pave the way for the trio of death cocktails that are waiting on deck. The second drug pancuronium bromide automatically begins into Gacy's arm and his muscles start to relax. Because the drug relaxes the muscles that allow breathing, it too can cause death. It is suddenly obvious that the line is clogged for the third one, for the third uh, injection, and the chemical inside has stalled en route to its deadly destination, rejecting Gacy's body as if it knew what evil lay inside. That's a good line right there. I mean, eventually I take it, it worked? Yeah, eventually it worked. Well, one of the questions I was going to ask you is, uh, how many times have you uh, eaten KFC since? Uh, <laughs> since? <laughs> well, I have to tell you that you know I'm I'm actually a very healthy person, and I did a bodybuilding yeah. competition a while ago. So, oh really? I, I, I generally do not eat fried food, but boy, do I like the smell of it. There were drums beating. Music blaring and people dressed in clown suits. Jesus Christ. Were they left over from Halloween? The signs were varied and creative. Ding dong, the clown is dead. An eye for an eye and no tears for the clown. Kind of crazy. At age 52 and 58 days, John Wayne Gacy is dead. The curtains open again. The death crew almost forgotten. The expectant crowd waiting on the other side of the glass. The heart monitor is checked and the time of death is announced exactly at 1258 a.m. Yeah, because I was kind of worried you, that you may think that you may have failed, but you didn't. I mean, this is a heroic thing you've done, you know, to, to do that, to stand up for what you believe in. Because a lot of people can't say that they do that, you know. And, so. and thank you for saying that. But I think that the competitive lawyer part of me knows that, you know, it was a huge loss. I mean, I've lost cases before. I've lost trials before. I've lost, but to lose someone's life. I mean, you know, mm. I know I was dealt with a bad hand, right? <laughs> 33 boys under your house, like. Yeah, you know, yeah. I mean, it was it was as they say a tough case. Um, mm -hmm. But I still, you know, I I still it's I lost a life, I lost a client, I lost mm -hmm. a case. So um, I'm not going to be too hard on myself, but but I still think of it as a loss. Like let's say by a long shot it would have worked, and and you would have gotten him uh, off death row. Do you think you guys would still be in communication? Probably. I will have to say I think my career would be in a worse place because one. Once Gacy was executed, there was a sense of relief in the community. I have to tell you, when you go to Chicago and you're in a room of 100 people, and if I were to stand up and say I represented Gacy, there'd be five people who say, I know the victim, this person. I I mm. sold uh, John Gacy a car. I knew the mother of one of the victims. You know, mm. everybody has a connection to Gacy. Everybody was relieved when he was executed. So I think that it would have kept the wound open, and I mm. think it would 
have kept, um, I think it would have been a negative reflection on me instead of a positive one, if that makes any sense. I think losing the case is probably better for me than it would have been to win it. Well, I do think they should make a movie about your story because, I mean, I mean, you're, you're really brave to take on that stance, not only trying to change the minds of America about the death penalty, but doing so with John Wayne Gacy. And that that is a seems impossible. But uh, I mean, one your, your reasons, book. Yeah, one of the reasons ahead. I wrote the book, in addition to a bunch of other reasons, is because I was approached by uh, a movie house to do a movie. And I decided mm. I'm not going to do that until I write the book, because I want to tell yeah. my story the way it's true and the way I want to tell it. And if there's going to be some sort of docuseries or, or fictionalized account, you know, so be it. I, I'm not super eager to do that. But um, but I but I think that 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 might be down the line. Yeah, it's a wonderful story. Uh, just one one more. Um, ha- like, how did your life change after he was executed? Did you were you were you did you get your clients back? I know you said during your interaction and before he was executed, you lost a client that would have paid out one hundred fifty thousand dollars, you know, and that's that's your livelihood. Did, I guess it got better after a while once the wound started healing a little bit and you got back to. Yeah, uh, I, I think that some of the clients did not, not like our stance. Number one, number mm-hmm. two, they didn't like being associated with us because we were associated with Gacy. And I think third, a lot of clients thought we were too busy doing all this, you know, emergency work to really pay attention to our clients, which mm-hmm. was not the case because we were very, we worked really hard to add that to our to our list and not, not you know, didn't detract from our representation. But it, it was it was the best thing that could ever happen in my career. Why? Yeah. In a week later, the dean of my law school came to me and offered me a professorship. This is like, mm-hmm. this is a reserve. This is a very good law school. He's a reserve for like academics who go to Harvard. That wasn't me. And I taught uh, law school for 20 years. Yeah. Uh, I got a radio show with my partner because we had done so much radio that they said, hey, you guys are great on radio. Now we have a radio show given to us. And then I started doing legal uh, anal- um, analyzing. And, you know, interestingly, not 30 days after Gacy's execution, there was a former football player who took a drive in a white Bronco named mm. Simpson, who now all of the CNN and people who knew me from all the commentary said, oh, let's bring Karen in. She's a member mm. of the California bar and let's interview her. And so I became an OJ Simpson commentator, which I love that. Yeah. yeah. So it was all these connections and all the things that I became good at, proficient at during AC all came to my benefit and still benefit me even now. Well, that thank you so much for granting me this interview. Thanks. Uh, yeah. I can't wait to, to see and hear the podcast. Thanks, Karen. So that is, uh, that is that story, man. So I hope very you guys enjoyed. Cool. Yeah. yeah. Very, very that cool was, interview. Uh, yeah, that was so cool. Like, I I love these episodes where you get to talk to different people and hear different perspectives. We and- know she wasn't live right there. Yes, we're that aware. That was previously recorded. Thank you. Thank you for clarifying. Oh, my God. Thank you so much. <laughs> Yeah. All right. So that's it. And that's all I got. So I hope you guys enjoyed. We'll be back tomorrow, obviously, for headlines and then stories coming up. I don't know if Sable's still on here, but I just got a book in that you requested. I don't know if y'all heard of a, a man named Rockefeller. One of the Rockefellers. He was uh, Oysters Rockefeller. The uh, can Ooh. the Cannibal Rockefeller case. Can't oh, interesting. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. But I can't okay. wait to do that one. But uh, I appreciate you guys being here. And yeah, that's all I got. So until next time, good night, you lovely, lovely people. Kind of running this shit.